What's up, Longhorn fans? Welcome to another edition of Trey Chats. And boy, do I have a really good one for you today. Coming up a little bit later on, we are talking Austin food with Austin American Statesman restaurant critic Matthew Odom. He has his 2022 restaurant guide out. It's his 27 favorite restaurants in the city. So we'll discuss some of those coming up here shortly. Prior to that, it will be Joe Madden. Yes, the guy who helped lead the Chicago Cubs to their first World Series championship in more than a century. Former baseball manager, maybe future baseball manager. He has a new book out that's part baseball, part philosophy, part history. Very entertaining, as you're probably well aware if you know about Joe Madden. It's a very enjoyable chat. Can't wait to present it to you. Prior to that, though, it's the guy who leads things off most weeks. It is my friend Brian Jones. He of CBS, of course, the lead college football studio analyst for CBS prior to at halftime and even after those 2.30 games on CBS. BJ, thank you as always. How you doing this week, man? I am great, man. And, and you have to share the food critics guide, restaurant guide, because so much has changed in Austin. I have so many people when they're traveling, they're asking me for recommendations and I just give them the oldie but goodies that I was familiar with. And every time I visit, I'm hip to some new spot. So uh, I can't wait to to see that. And and, and Joe Madden, man, that book has got to be a hoot because he's a trip and, and he dances only to his tune, which is cool. Yeah, you got to love somebody like that. I, I got to tell you, BJ, as uh, somebody who's lived here for a long time, obviously you and I used to work together along with uh, Kevin Dunn and Chad Hastings over at 1300 The Zone. Back when Austin was an okay food town, uh, you were one of the first guys that I knew that actually uh, took us, and it was, I think, for your going away party to one of your favorite spots in town that was one of the first truly really good food places that I got to eat at in Austin, too, uh, Kenichi, that used to be over ah. on Fifth Street. You remember that? Kenichi, yeah, I remember that. That was our spot, boy. If you couldn't catch at Kenichi, you couldn't catch. <laughs> that was a hot spot and uh, still have uh, lots of uh, friends from there. Uh, my boy uh, Shane has a restaurant over in Guadalupe, Mongers. Uh, so uh, check that out. I'm always in there for some great uh, fish and, and, and seafood. But yeah, Kenichi's was a lot of fond memories. Let's just say that. How big of a spot was Kenichi back in the day? I'm not even kidding. When we were there, Lance Armstrong and Cheryl Crow were off in the corner. So yep. uh, it was uh, it was big time. Sadly, no longer with us, but a lot of great uh, a lot of great restaurants that we'll talk about coming up here in a little bit. Well, we're putting off the inevitable, BJ, and that is talking about <laughs> Texas football dropping another disappointing one this time to the Oklahoma State Cowboys in Stillwater. It seemed like Texas had a game plan to get the job done, but unfortunately, uh, when your quarterback is playing as poorly as Quinn Ewers was throughout the course of that game, and Steve Sarkeesian really not finding any answers on offense, ultimately a defense that was okay throughout portions of the game, good in the third quarter, quarter, ultimately they wore down and allowed Spencer Sanders and those Oklahoma State Cowboys to come back for the win. Well, man, I, I guess you have to start with the most glaring issue was 14 penalties to zero penalties. I, I don't recall such a disparity in a football game. And as my colleague Rick Neuheisel said on our show last evening, uh, no one's that good. And, and there were some calls. Uh, the one that stands out to me was uh, Jamison in the end zone uh, has an interception opportunity and, and the receivers draped all over him. Now, if it had been reversed, Obviously, they would have called P.I., and there should have been a P.I. on the Oklahoma State receiver in that instance. But uh, you can't do that. You can't have the self-inflicted wound, especially on the road. 
And they had penalties in every way imaginable. Uh, it, I mean, it, it was from guys jumping off sides to P.I. Uh, it, it was just crazy. Uh, the one holding call that was really detrimental there at the end after Ewers had the long scramble, I shared that clip with a bunch of my buddies that – I shouldn't say a bunch, a few of my buddies that have played offensive linemen and well-versed in holding. And it, they said that the takedown was really uh, – got the flag on that play because he, the kid wasn't going to make, I think it was 94, wasn't going to make the tackle on yours. He was past him, but yet they threw the holding flag. So that one really, really hurt Texas, but you, you, you got to be more disciplined. And, and this late in the season, uh, they should be in, in the second year of, of being under the, the tutelage and mentorship of this coaching staff, they should be, you cannot make that many, many silly mistakes. And then the, Others that came to mind as far as the defense, and I've been saying this, and I sound like a broken record, dude, but but football is simple, man. It, it's about knowing your gap responsibility, and it's about tackling. And, and, and these guys, they had some missed tackles in this ball game. Of course, the go-ahead touchdown, uh, the young man, number nine, uh, ran. Uh, that was just sickening to watch and, and, and I said to watch it over and over just sickening and you've got guys taking bad angles to the ball you have guys throttling down before the ball carrier the receiver is on the ground you you, you can't do that uh, so there, there's a lot more to work on here ninth week into the season than there should be uh, it, th this team should not be sitting here with now a second loss in a true road game uh, they should not be suffering from the same mistakes uh, as they were a season ago. Uh, something's amiss. Something's not registering because you've got to bring that same funk, that same energy each and every week, and especially going on the road. A place such as that, you got to be fired up. And they were, you scored 31 points in the first half, man, and only three in the second half. Really, it was reminiscent of the Tech game all over again. You just can't. You can't do that, and they did it, and there was a reason why I picked Oklahoma State to win last week because I cannot believe in this Texas team in true road games, at least not yet. Well, the offensive struggles are especially frustrating, BJ, because Bijan and Roshan looked as good as we've maybe seen them in yeah. the first half of that game as they have all year long. And the week before, Steve Sarkeesian realized that Quinn Ewers didn't have it, so he leaned a little bit more heavily on that rushing attack. For whatever reason, they were still insisting on trying to throw the football in the second half, and unfortunately it led to either a lot of three and outs or short drives that, uh, as you just mentioned, led to three points on one occasion, and that was it for the final 40 minutes. Yeah, that makes no sense. That running game was was really uh, giving uh, Oklahoma State the business. Uh, and in the second half, uh, it, it was lessened as far as the, the run calls. And, 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 and if you can pack a running game on the road, man, that bodes well for you. And why not continue to lean on that running game? And, yeah, we all want to you know spread them out and, and chunk it, and they tried the angle route, whether it was Bijan, whether it was Roshan, that never was there. And they tried that a few times. And yours was off. He was off from the get-go. First pass uh, was off. I think it was two passes later he throws the pick. He missed the wide open Xavier Worthy in the end zone later in the ball game on a little uh, flag route, uh, I believe it was. So uh, he, he was off, and that's to be expected. Sometimes your quarterback's going to be on. That's his first uh, road game in the Texas Longhorn uniform. So not being in those comfy confines of, of DKR, I, I get it. And you want to help him play through 
all the, the, the mistakes and, and missteps, but man, lean on the running game, the guys that have been on the road and the guys that have been really carrying you in, in, in that first half. So uh, I'm, I'm sure the coaching staff has to be questioning why they didn't uh, do so. And that being said, that offensive line is still too dang leaky. Uh, they got to be better. They got to be more physical. They got to push the line and, and get to that second level. I see guys making a block or missing a block and then looking back. Don't look back. Go get someone in front of you. You look back. You, and one and I guess it was a week ago, the, the tackle ended up running into the ball carrier. Keep your ass going forward, man. You look back, someone will be gaining on you. If the back is worth his salt and you know Bijan is, He'll make that guy miss. You go get the next one if you miss your initial block. So a lot of things that are correctable, but haven't been corrected. I just don't know why it doesn't it doesn't register. They they should have blown that team out, man, by scoring 31 in the first half. And, and then the tackling and the angles, the bad angles, and uh that one touchdown by Presley, quick slant, the damn safety, I believe it was 21. He's outside. He doesn't even see Presley catch the damn ball. Where are you looking? Because they gave you tunnel screen action. Where are you looking? All you do is stay where you were, and you get, uh, I mean, just a collision with Presley, if nothing else. But, yet he flies outside. There's nothing out there for him to do. Another instance, you, you got three in there, Diamante, and he's got the back. You got a, uh, man coverage. He aligns to the boundary, and the back is already set to the field, there's no way he's going to get out there and catch that dude. And what do they do? They throw a swing pass to him, and it's a quick eight- or nine-yard game. So you, you have to align correctly to carry out your duties. you got to be a smart football player and anticipate. And I know a lot of those guys in the secondary, they were getting their first run, man, especially with, with Cook going down. So you got a lot of injuries, and you want to play these guys you've recruited who have uh, a lot of hype coming in. I get that. But uh, they made some mistakes that were just glaring. And you would hope you didn't have to play all of them together at once. You still like to have some senior leadership back there to help line them up. I remember playing with a guy in, in, the, in the NFL, and he was a first-round pick. And we were told, because you had to get him on the field. That's just how crazy talented he was. But he didn't have a great grasp of the scheme and the concepts we were running. So we were told if we didn't line him up correctly, uh, if he didn't line up correctly, it was our fault. Because we were charged with making sure he knew what the call was, understanding it, and lining up to carry out his responsibility. So it was on us, uh, the, the vets, to make sure this young buck got where he needed to be. And you would have liked that situation in that secondary as well without having to play so many young guys uh, together. Gosh, for a university that fashions itself as DBU, it is shocking to see just how uh, unprepared the backups are at pretty much every secondary position to get into the game. Uh, hopefully that's something that they can work on this off weeks. But, but I guess the question becomes how much of what ails this team right now, can you work on over the next couple of weeks as this team does get this Saturday off? You can work on all of it, man. You, you gotta have every game has its own cadence, its own rhythm. So I can understand being thrust out there and taking a bad angle because you're not, haven't adjusted to the speed of the game. I, I get that, but see that over and over again is just wrong. And then you cannot go underneath blocks. I've, I've talked till I was blue in the face a year ago about Overshawn doing that, and he's still doing that. You cannot go underneath these blocks. If you do, you better damn sure make the tackle. You got to go over the top, man, because when you go underneath those blocks, that just widens the hole, and that's a bigger lane for that ball carrying. That's what 
you see when you turn on the game film. So the, the, the fundamentals still come back and plague this football team, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But, man, I had so much stuff written down, I had to stop. It took me forever to go through that game film. Uh, unlike other – similar to last year and not so much – thus far this year until this past weekend because there were so many glaring issues uh, just breaking that bad boy down. Well, we'll uh, stop dwelling on Texas right now. Fortunately, we don't have to uh, pick a game for the Longhorns this weekend. They are back on the road uh, when they do return to action, traveling to a place that hasn't been too kind to Texas throughout this century, that being Manhattan, Kansas, for a matchup with the now-ranked Kansas State Wildcats. Some of the other big matchups this weekend, BJ, starting at with the uh, 11 o'clock Fox game, the big noon matchup. It's 11 a.m. Central time. Number two, Ohio State, who may be playing as well as anybody right now, travels to Happy Valley to take on number 13, Penn State. Sean Clifford has looked better this year, a little bit more consistent. Are you giving the Nittany Lions any chance to win this one? I'm going to say it's close. It'll be okay. closer than was the the Michigan Penn State ball game. I don't think uh, Ohio State runs for over four four hundred on this defense. Uh, Sean Clifford played lights out last week. I think it was four touchdown passes. He's going to have to do the same. Uh, he played extremely well going up against Minnesota, uh, and that defense held Minnesota to under two hundred yards rushing. Uh, and and of course you you've got. Ohio State rolling in there with such balance, man, and they just plug these wide receivers in, uh, whether it's Flemings, who caught a touchdown last week, who's from Pennsylvania. Uh, you, you got, of course, Marvin Harrison Jr., uh, Jackson Smith and, and Jigba is still not 100%. He may get some run, but it doesn't matter. Uh, they find guys that can that can immediately uh, pay dividends. And then the running game with Williams and, and, and Henderson. So, uh, and, and Stroud can move his leg with 28 touchdowns, only four picks. Uh, on, on the season, I think it's going to be tough duty. Uh, the Penn State defense, they're not as bad as they showed versus uh, Michigan. I uh, just really don't know what occurred there, uh, but they will play better. But I still think Ohio State wins. You guys on CBS are broadcasting the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Number one, Georgia and Florida squaring off in Jacksonville. This is a reload year for the Florida Gators, obviously the first year for Billy Napier. Uh, did Napier and company have a chance this year, or uh, is Georgia going to end up winning this one by uh, somewhere to three to five touchdowns? In, in the, these rivalry games, as you know, anything can happen, and that's not just a, a cliche or a talking point. That's the truth, both with a week off. Uh, if Anthony Richardson is right at the quarterback position for Florida, they've got a chance because he's he's the catalyst for that offense. They got the other kid, number two, uh, whose name, I think he's Johnson, uh, who's running well and, and transferred over from Louisiana along with their coach. But uh, it's going to begin and end with, with Richardson. Only one conference game this year has he thrown for over 300, and that was versus Tennessee, who has the next to the last and all the FBS pass defense. So that's not saying a lot, but at least he took advantage of a, a woeful pass defense. I like Georgia in the ball game. Uh, you look at their numbers now through uh, midseason, uh, they're comparable or better than that defense's numbers were a, a, a season ago, uh, winning a national title. Uh, they've been able to erase and replace on that side of the ball, as I knew they would. Uh, and, and offensively, man, a lot more people are getting into, uh, into coming into play, especially at the wide receiver position, the healthiest they've been there in that, that room in a long, long time. Uh, so I, I like Georgia to win the ball game. It's a rivalry game. We'll see. Remember last year it was close. Cl uh, they're late in the second half, uh, in the second quarter, and then all types of calamities 
befell uh, uh, Florida. So uh, we'll see what shakes out in this one, but I'm going to go with Georgia for sure. Big 12 has a ranked matchup at 230 on Fox. That's number nine, Oklahoma State. Traveling to Manhattan, Kansas. I think that actually kind of benefits the Texas Longhorns. It should be a physical affair. Kansas State, not sure if they're going to have Adrian Martinez. Will Howard comes in last week, does an adequate job. He ends up getting hurt too, has to come back in the game because the third stringer throws an interception in his very first pass attempt. Uh, I think Oklahoma State's getting Kansas State at a pretty good time right now. Having said that, though, Kansas State is good enough running the football, and they really haven't unleashed Deuce Vaughn so far this year that perhaps they can do so, placed out defense, and figure out a way to upset the number nine Cowboys. And, and Deuce was banged up in that TCU ball game. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see who plays. Uh, I believe Martinez will probably still be out. And, and Will Howard availed himself well. I think the first four series, they scored touchdowns uh, with him out there. And, of course, he was a starter a, a season ago. Uh, I'm, I'm leaning – I think I, I picked Oklahoma State to win this ball game. And, and you're right, Little Manhattan's going to be, be tough. But Oklahoma State, when Sanders is right, especially what she was in that second half, they're such as Florida. Uh, with, with Richardson, if he's right, man, that offense is, is really, really clicking. And they always seem to have some some uh, receivers that can make the big plays, as they did last week. Uh, and, and and I think they learned a lot about themselves from that that come from by or the TCU come from behind win against them in overtime two weeks ago. And then, of course, being behind last week and, and coming back and beating Texas. So uh, you We'll see who starts for them. What they went without five starters last week versus Texas and still got the W. Uh, I'm going to lean Oklahoma State uh, in this one, but you're right, K State, man. That defense still nasty, still not giving up more than you know 20 points per game uh, on on average. Although TCU took it to them in their second half. All right, we're going to skip Kentucky-Tennessee, even though it's a ranked matchup. We are limited on time here because I did want to ask you one final question, BJ. Sure. Just how good do those Aggie tears taste right now? <laughs> First of all, Tennessee will win, but they better not sleep on, on Kentucky. It was 45-42 a year ago. Once again, the worst pass defense next to last. In, in 131 FBS teams, and Tennessee ranks 130 in, in uh, pass defense. Man, uh, they can't get right. They probably couldn't get sin right right now there in, in College Station. But it is uh, just bad. Out of the gates, off a of bye, you give up an opening kickoff, uh, touchdown, uh, picks. Uh, they're there. Watch, though. This is just the type of game that they will win. With all the turmoil, what's going on in the locker room or what went on in the locker room there last week, and, and this is the type of game they will rally being at home, and they will win. This is the sort of sideways for a program that would have you wondering if they're maybe considering getting rid of the coach. The problem for AM, of course, is that they've signed Jimbo Fisher through uh, 2020, uh, 2200 They've signed him for like the next two centuries, so they can't get rid of the guy. Like $10 million per year, they're stuck with him for right now. They've got to wait another year or two at least before they consider such a move. Man, I, I wish I would give me $85 million to go away. Just $1 million to go away. I'll take that. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, 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 I'm befuddled uh, by the, the the play of this team. And they're the pro they're, they've got to be the biggest disappointment. They're my biggest disappointment coming into the season with a lot of hype and and uh, they just have not shown well, man. It's just been perplexing. Well, it's not perplexing. The quarterback. If you don't have a quarterback that can ball, you're going to be in trouble. And this kid cannot play. He's jittery, uh, skittish, and, and not decisive. 
Yeah, Max Johnson was a slightly better option for sure. He is Brian Jones. Check him out this weekend on CBS. He is the lead studio analyst for their college football coverage. And make sure to check out the 230 game this weekend. That would be Georgia and Florida. BJ, always a pleasure. Have yourself a, a great rest of the week, man. Okay, appreciate it, my man. Hook him. Got it. Hook him. All right, we go from football to baseball now and welcome Joe Madden to the show. He is a three-time Manager of the Year award winner whose 19 years in baseball includes taking the Tampa Bay Rays to their first ever World Series and helping the Chicago Cubs win their first World Series championship in 106 years. And he's just released a new book about his life and a whole lot more. It's called The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. Earlier this week, I had a chance to speak with Joe about baseball and live. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. Where am I, where am I calling? Where are, you, where are you at? Austin, Texas. You ever been here? I have not. You know what? That's crazy. That's one place I've wanted to go to. I've so many times driven my RV from uh, Tampa to Arizona, get on 10, go through San Antonio and say, I'm one of these, I'm just going to, you know, drive on up to Austin. I never did it. I wanted to go to Marfa also just to drive through Marfa. I thought that'd be kind of interesting too, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So well, and I sold my RV. If you're gonna drive through Marfa, you got to hang out there for a couple of days and get into yeah. the uh, world of the Mar Marfonians. Yeah, I've been. I read all about it. I saw the um, uh, there was a show on uh, 60 Minutes one night about it a couple of years ago, and that's what got me attached. And I just, you know, when you're when you're driving that far, the thought sounds great until you're driving that far, and then you just <laughs> want to get where you're going. And that's what happens every time. Well, especially on I-10. I mean, that's obviously such a long drive. And you get to that point of desolation Correct. once you get through the Texas Hill Country where you understand why Hollywood is filming movies that are supposedly on other planets in that part of the world. Because it's, I mean, it's just not, it is not uh, compatible with most life. Agreed. Uh, and But the, maybe the redeeming quality is you can go 80 miles an hour there without worrying about it. Right. The 80 mile an hour. I love the 80 mile an hour speed limit signs. I think they've actually bumped it up to 85 now, too. Really? Sweet. Right. OK, yeah. my van, my van is almost done. I have a 76 Dodge van. It maybe at some point I'll be adventurous enough to drive that across, which would be easier. I think I might. That's probably the better thought. So there's lots of different things that we find out about you in this book, Joe. But the book's not necessarily just about you. I love it. And I think it's very befitting of the type of person that you are because it's part autobiography. It is part history lesson, sometimes history lessons that have very little to do with you. And it's also part philosophy on leadership and on life as well. When you and uh, Tom Verducci really started putting this project together, was this what you had in mind or is this ultimately what it became as you were really working through uh, this pro uh, project? You nailed it. That's exactly what we had wanted. Um, it was going to be overarching, uh, comparing and contrasting managing, managing styles or managers from the 1980s to present time and how it has changed so much. And then with it, within that, I've, I've never wanted to just do an autobiography or a biography regarding just, you know, how I grew up and where I lived and all that other kind of stuff. I didn't want that. I wanted it to be more than that. I've always thought that. 
Um, so in 2008, I was first approached to do something like this. When I was with the Rays, we went to the World Series, but I knew it wasn't time. I wasn't complete enough at that point. So go through the World Series, win with the Cubs. Here comes 19. Uh, you depart uh, ways. And I got I saw Tommy. We talked about it. And it was just the perfect time to also include the philosophical component and then the leadership component. And you're right. I mean, um, you know, sometimes you, you get self-deprecating and you don't want to put it out there. But the, the madnisms, the little chapters, uh, titles, each chapter have some meaning to them. And they're all mine. I mean, it's that's that's the part that I've, uh, you know, there's probably a little plagiarism involved there somewhere just unintentionally. But that's that's how I used to build my uh, messaging to the players based on those kind of thoughts. That's the T-shirts, reminders, uh, fun stuff um, that helps to build and remind. So. Your evaluation's right on. Why are those slogans so important when it comes to getting a message across, Joe? Because obviously uh, you have the try not to suck from the Chicago Cubs era and plenty of others. And as you said, the each chapter is titled with a uh, different phrase that you have utilized throughout your life, sometimes personally, sometimes professionally, and helping to get through to other people. Right. And it started in the 80s. Um I was in charge of the Angels minor league system, and I was always, um, I guess, bothered by it to a certain extent, where I didn't think people really understood how much every day counted, whereas that could be the day of the epiphany. <laughs> and you, and if you uh, backed off on your instruction or the player backed off on his ability to receive, you might miss that moment. So my first T-shirt was Every Day Counts. And... Uh, for that reason, that's exactly what I'm talking about. From a baseball perspective, you don't want to lose that moment that the light bulb just goes on and understand every day you go out there to talk to a player, that might be the light bulb day. So it started with that. Um, I even, even did my, uh, I got loud t-shirts when I used to drove into a city. It was a screaming baseball for the hitter. They didn't get the most hits, but hit the ball the hardest. I was ahead of the uh, exit velocity curve, the loudness. And then all the others that you saw, um, when my first in, in Tampa that I still love is uh, tell me what you think, not what you've heard, no regurgitation. Uh, it, it gets to the point where people just repeat narratives, uh, original thought, their ability to take, well, okay, I hear that, but what, what do I really think about that and get a little bit deeper on your own level? I don't think it happens often enough. I think we were regurgitators and I was really working against that baseball and I'm defending the history of baseball and the fundamentals, but sometimes uh, thoughts are passed from one generation to the other without considering that it might actually be taught better or it might be the wording might be moved around to make it even more um, advantageous to the group. So that was the crux of that. So that kept building and kept building and try not to suck was the one that sold the most. And, and that one really, um, you know, it's still on the walls in Chicago. We did not suck. So it's very cool. It's very cool. And, and my favorite might be do simple better because we're all looking for convoluted answers in this world. And, and to me, um, wow, it just reduced, reduced, reduced. If you get in a hot moment, if things like athletically, let's say, and it's going to be difficult or tough, whatever, you're not going to remember all this crap. You got to have a nugget or two that 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 could bring you back in the moment right now. Oh yeah, and that and that that one thought triggers about fifteen or twenty other thoughts without you having to activate them. It just happens. So that's what I'm into. Well, I understand why Try Not to Suck resonates so much, not only because of the successes 
that it helped to bring about, but also there's like a humorous element to it. The one that really does sure. resonate with me is tell me what you think, not what you heard, especially in this day and age where it's so difficult for people to be present because we're constantly staring at these little screens with flashing lights and really not thinking about things all that deeply anymore versus letting these technologies really tell us how to feel and think. Amen. hundred percent. Right on. I'm with you hundred percent on that. So it shouldn't be surprising to anybody that you were surrounded by a bunch of great leaders growing up. Who exactly was Bob Root and what uh, impact did he have in your leadership style? See, I was actually a football player first and uh, from Northeastern Pennsylvania. And I, I listen, I had some tough coaches here now. I'm in, I'm not far from the coal mines. And I love that I, I lived that close to the coal mines. Both grandparents started there. Uh, Bob Root was at Lafayette College. Bob Root was a retired, uh, great football coach from Phillipsburg. New Jersey is my quarterback coach. And I've always, I mean, I had, like I said, these tough guys and I love the tough guys because they made me tougher, but I wanted to be communicated with. I wanted to be spoken to. I didn't want to be anybody getting upset with me for making a dumb decision. Right. When I got to Lafayette, uh, coach root, God, he was so good at explaining things. And, and if I, my thoughts mirrored his in, in conversation, wow. Validation from coach root. Um, so I thought he's the one that, that taught me, uh, respect through communication as, as opposed to attempt at respect through intimidation. That was all coach root. Now I've had some great coaches before then, obviously after, but Bob coach, Bob root indelible impression on me. It culminated with last touchdown pass against Lehigh. I, I called the play on my own, come to the sidelines. And he told me I'd done exactly the same thing. Wow. Coach root. Right. So uh, you uh, do talk about your baseball journey, not only as a skipper, of course, but also as a player. Uh, you end up getting into baseball, uh, ultimately mm -hmm. catch the eye of uh, an angel scout who yeah. takes you in, play minor league baseball for several years, but it wasn't exactly linear. You going from player to baseball coach. So what exactly happened to get you into the coaching side of the sport? Uh, just the fact that I wasn't good enough to play it, you know, and uh, the, the guy you're talking about is Nicky Kamzik. He was a, a famous scout, funny little guy. But I, I'm playing for three, three and a half years. And, you know, your body breaks down. I mean, I I did not have the body for all that either to be able to replicate the uh, throwing motion, hitting motion like an everyday major league player can. So everything starts breaking down. And then Lake Christopher comes up. Lake Christopher is one of the best scouts ever. Comes up and asks me one day, "When are you going to stop playing and start coaching?" I was so I was pissed at him. I was angry. What do you mean? I'm 23, 24 years old. But anyway, he was right. And then um, so then Larry Himes recognized that in me. Called me on the eve of, of Thanksgiving in 1980 when I had this recent offer to go to Italy to play baseball. Now just think when you're that at that age on your own, Italy play baseball, Angels start new career. And thankfully, I was mature enough to realize that the Angels had a greater opportunity to stick. So I chose it. It was not, it was not an easy decision, but that's where it all began. And then I get to 1981 and become a scout and a minor league manager. And I'm, and I'm taught by Larry Himes, who's to me one of the best, another great scout, taskmaster man. Man, if you didn't have a good answer to his questions, you got your butt chewed on really hard. And I, and I love all that. I love the fact that I had Bob Roots of the world, Larry Himes of the world, Adam Siminski's of the world, Richie Rabbits is Jackson. I had all these, this different group of coaches coming at you from different angles, but all wanted to make you better. 
So you shared a, a thought in this book that has to do mm -hmm. with talking to other big time coaches who have won championships at the highest level and a question that you would want to ask them. And you really provide your answer in an interesting way as well. And that question is whether it's like a Bill Belichick or a Phil Jackson or let's be honest, a Joe Madden, is if you could go back to any one championship in your career, what would that be? And for you, it's a difficult decision between that Cubs ship in, uh, in the uh, middle part of this latter decade and also a championship that happened in 1982 when you were managing the Salem Angels for the Northwest yeah. League Championship. Why exactly that one? That's a first. Um, that was your first and um, it's so pure that I, I mean, you're, you're, you just say that I'm just thinking about the celebration afterwards. I'm thinking about how I challenged a writer after a game in Medford early in the season because he was making fun of my my team. Uh, you know, you do some things instinctively. I mean, I can't you can't threaten a writer. I didn't know that when I was 27 and the league president gets on me and he was a good dude. And he told me, listen, you can't do that. He find me, I think, like maybe 25 bucks. Um, but when you go through that moment, it's it's all relative. That was that was my World Series. My first uh, my second year managing uh, a really good team, a lot of good young players. But when you celebrate a championship, whether it's versus the Medford A's and then eventually, yes, the Cleveland Indians, which is obviously uh, extraterrestrial in a sense. But uh, that first time you do something like that, everything you thought is validated. And there was a bunch of young guys there and they were like so thrilled. It's hard. I mean, it's see with first time eyes, feel with first time passion. That was the first championship that I was involved in as a manager. And it'll always stick. Why is struggling so important, Joe, not just in sports, but also in life? <clears throat> you don't learn otherwise. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the learning moment. That's the teachable moment. That's the one that, that molds you, forms you, uh, makes you think, uh, makes you be creative, makes you be, innovative it's just it just does i mean when everything's are go everything's going well it takes a, a really strong-minded individual to understand that but then also try to branch out and realize okay it's going well right now uh, how do i prevent it from going badly but when you're going through some difficult moments man um it, it brings out every part of you i think it brings out the best in you um and and when you do eventually realize your success wow you really appreciate it way more than uh, something that has been earned as opposed to just presented or given completely different process. So uh, I've always talked to my kids about it. I used to always tell them, listen, enjoy the struggle. They look at me like, what are you nuts? Mm -hmm. And then, and then no, you have to understand again, that's where growth occurs. So um, I hope people understand that, that uh, that is where growth occurs and that's where you're going to become who you are. And eventually when you look back to think that you've earned something from a to Z is a pretty wonderful feeling. Yeah, honestly, it's the part you're telling your kids about it that jumped out to me in that chapter. I've got an eight and six-year-old at home right now, and that's something that I try and talk to them about. And I worry that their life is a little bit too easy at times because sometimes uh, the, the seemingly most trivial things uh, just tear them to pieces. But I try to help them out and tell them, look, mm -hmm. 
It's important to examine all avenues of something that you're trying to accomplish, something you're trying to do, or a situation that you're in to understand that it may not always go swimmingly. And when it goes the worst, that's the most important time to be paying attention. And it's also important, Joe, to make sure not to allow yourselves to get too high or low uh, based on a given situation. That's not to say you can't show any emotion, but you can't let those things dwell because one way or the other, that leads to complacency too. Agreed. Uh, the power of 24 hours in it with the, with my teams, I had one, I'm, I'm very, I'm not big on rules at all. I'm, I'm not a rules kind of a guy. Um, I believe the more freedom given the greater respect and discipline returned. Um, so I was not ever a rules kind of a guy. So I, I kind of leave it uh, open ended like that for the team. I'm not talking about like we're saying like six or seven, seven year old kids. It's, it's grownups, professionals. And I found that to really uh, help a lot. The fact that uh, they know they know that uh, if you just stay within a certain range, and and I oftentimes I've often um, began talks to my players by saying, I don't have to tell you the difference between right or wrong. I, I, you know that you already know that there's a compass within every one of us, regardless of where you come from. You know what's right and what's wrong. I always say choose right. That's 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 how I uh, speak to my guys normally. Um, and it's true. Um, so you, you get to these difficult moments. Absolutely. The struggle does occur. But in deep down, I think uh, just as a human being, we know what is right and what is wrong. And with my players, I just ask them, choose right. And, and if we do, this is going to work out pretty well. That's right. As uh, Camus said that you uh, posted on the walls of yeah. the Tampa Rays clubhouse, integrity has no need of yeah. rules. Why is Kenny Grant, the hardest player that you ever had to release uh, in 1989. Love Kenny Grant. I mean, my buddy Donnie Long. We were just texting the other day. He was he gave, he gave me a Donnie uh, Kenny Grant story that made me laugh. Kenny was just the nicest kid in the world from uh, Patterson, New Jersey, but really talented. And actually, if you look back at his numbers that he compiled, had he done them in today's game, this guy would have gone a lot further because the the uh, eye at the plate, the uh, the ability to not uh, expand the strike zone was really important. He had a great arm, but he had this great laugh, looked you right in the eyeballs, and I just loved the kid. I just did. Um, so there was you, – you, you work and you invest so much time with the player. As a coach, um, I was a hitting coach. I was I, – I ran everything there. I was the coordinator. So um, as a hitting coach, you spend a lot of time with young players. And Kenny listened all the time, and Kenny worked hard, and Kenny – always played at hundred percent, hundred percent of the time. And just, you just fall in love with some kids, you know? And so when I had to tell him he was gone, I cried. That was at the, in the office at Geonotry park in Mesa where I had this little hole in the wall office there and I have to tell Kenny that, wow. Uh, it was devastating to me. I know he took it a lot better than I did, hmm. but when you get really attached to a player, a kid like that, that you believe is really sincere. And you also know that, his alternatives after that didn't look strong. I didn't know what Kenny might do after that when he got home. I haven't seen him since. I think he's still around. I'd love to visit with him again, but really talented. And I was really disappointed. I couldn't help him more because I really thought this guy had an opportunity to play in the big leagues. The legendary Gene Mock paid you one of the best compliments you ever received. What was it and how did it impact you as a skipper going forward? Well, he walked up to me the one day and uh, I'm just running the instructional league. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to understand Gene. Gene was like the wind. He would show up and then he'd be gone. He didn't even realize he was gone. I'm just throwing batting practice. I'm doing my thing. And he walks up to me and he says, you've created a great atmosphere around here. <laughs> and I thought, 
what is he talking about? I said, thank you. And he walked away and that I went home that night and I tried to figure out what, what was Gene talking about today? Because if he recognizes that, and I don't know how it happened, I was concerned that I couldn't replicate it again. So I did. I went home and I thought about it that night and eventually it morphed into more thoughts. And what it came down to, I thought was relationship building communication. The fact we all trusted one another. Uh, we did exchange ideas openly. Nobody was afraid to say anything. And eventually, um, constructive criticism is a good thing, and it matters. And you have to have thick skin in our game. And our, us as a staff, we were great. The greatest arguments in the world. Awesome. Nobody held back. You know, you, we were never disrespectful, but you always argued your point. This is really gone in today's game and in clubhouses and coaches' rooms. It's that that real strong argument, possibly because everybody's – I think really then was really convicted in their teachings. Right now it's become, it's become more sterile, more uniform, uh, the way the game is taught and how it's processed. Back then it was a little bit more individualistic. And there was some great, great arguments. And it was it really led to our success. But um, so because of what Gene said to me that day, every year I'd go after that. I would consciously be aware of, you know, how's this going? Am I communicating well enough? Um, this is the trust factor been built, et cetera. So it came from that one comment. Obviously your successes with the Cubs are going mm -hmm. to lead you to not have to pay for a whole lot of uh, meals on the North side for the rest of your life. I got to tell you, it pissed me off to learn about just how you were treated by Theo Epstein and the Cubs heading into that final season that you had with the franchise. Did it hurt you uh, the way that you were treated by Theo where he was essentially micromanaging you by bringing up a memo based on player exit interviews from the previous season? Well, honestly, it didn't, ang it didn't anger me at the time. I thought, okay, maybe we're onto something or maybe I do. Um, I was not evaluating myself properly. That was my original thought. Um, so when I went there to, to hear all this, uh, of course, it was disappointing. Of course, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. I didn't recognize that whatsoever. So again, you know, uh, keep an open mind. You're, these guys are trying to teach you something possibly. So listen, uh, and I did. And I went back, I bought the, uh, uh, was it dummies, millennials for dummies. And I read that. And that as I'm reading that, I'm thinking to myself, you know what, you connect with, I connect with a lot of people. It doesn't matter your age. And I've never been, uh, intimidated or, or concerned about that. Eh. So I read it and I, and I tried to absorb it as much as I can. But by the middle of the season, I realized it was not true. It was not all the stuff that I had been told, was told in, in an emotional moment at the end of a really difficult season. And, you know, I, I was not included. I mean, it was just stuff that was thrown in my direction. So anyway, it's something you need constructive criticism. I was, I was listening to it and I took it in. I really did try to to alter some things, but at by like I said, by the midpoint, I knew it was uh, incorrect, and then it was too late for me to really um, step it back and 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 really try to reinstitute what I had been doing before, and so I just tried to make it work. That was it. It's been said before that managers are hired to be fired. This book says that you do want to manage again. What would you consider the right situation for you, Joe? The right situation has to be somebody I'm totally philosophically aligned with, um, somebody that recognizes that baseball and a human being is first and analytics numbers are second. Um, it has to be uh, a built process where, just based on what I just said, that there'd be a certain time of the day when people would not be permitted in the clubhouse. Uh, baseball people only and definitely right after the game, please stay away. Don't come back to the next morning if there's something you really want to rehash. 
it's just it's gotten to the point now, and you're watching the games, I'm sure, right now, too, that it's obvious where things are. And I'm a prescriptor, by the way. I do write out my game. That's another Gene Mock thing, before, during, and after. Hmm. But I do it myself, and I, I put up my bullpen according to what I believe before the game, how it should work. And, of course, with the input of my pitching coach and my bullpen coach. But theory and reality are two different things, man. It gets blown up. And part of the theory may be that you intend to take somebody out after four or five innings, but all of a sudden, man, this guy's on a roll, and we have a nice lead here. So I could just be cautious but give this guy an opportunity to become great as an example. So philosophically aligned, uh, real baseball first. I want an all-star group of coaches that I get to pick this time. What's happening in the game today, um, everybody else picking your coaches for you. I, I just brief, recently I had a, a phone call. A group is doesn't even have a manager, and they're looking for a hitting coach. So it just it indicates that that to me indicates, um, you know, we'll pick the coaches, and you come in here and manage it. I I had this thought. I talked to my agent, uh, one of my agents yesterday, Tommy Tanzer, and I said, I think we might be trending towards baseball having a head coach that wears a headset. I really do. I mean, it, it is. It, it is. I mean, I, I really believe there's people that would like that. Whereas you could have your analytical group upstairs, almost like an offensive and defensive coordinator. And it's permitted on both sides. It's just a hard line into each side. And, um, and maybe, you know, the, all the conversations we monitor so that you know that you're not doing anything illegal, but it's gotten to that point where it's going to go on from manager to middle manager to head coach. I think, and and they're going to have all kinds of influence coming um, from up above. I don't think that's a reach. Boy, headsets will be a real shame, but I, I'm not discounting it because you are one of the uh, the most forward-thinking people in the history of the sport. You are one of the first people to employ a shift. You did so on King Griffey Jr. I actually got him to uh, try and bunt for a hit. He ended up uh, getting out in that at bat. That's pretty legendary. So I have to finish this interview, Joe, by asking you one final question based on uh, just how progressive you are as a thinker in life and in baseball. Is it time to let the computers call balls and strikes? No, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, and actually, I got this from uh, a player. I don't know if he wants me to mention his name, so I won't right now. But I thought it was brilliant. Um, yeah, incorporate the robotic ball and strike, but it's not to have the umpire um, say ball or strike based on uh, this little beep in his ear. But if the if the ball was a strike or the strike was a ball that the voice in the ear says, hey, you missed that one, tighten it up there or open it up there. I think it'd be better served in that way where the umpire still is autonomous and calling the game and he's just getting direction. Hey, you're hitting, you're hitting, right? And you have a hitting coach in there. All of a sudden you're doing something that totally wrong from what you guys have been talking about. You know it, he knows it. You come in after the at-bat and the guy says, hey, come on, man, you just we just talked about that. Or the pitcher, same thing, gets off track. Come on, man, we just talked about that. Umpire, come on, man, we talked about that. Uh, tighten it up or open it up a little bit. I think that'd be interesting, more interesting. I, I just, the more... The more technology involved, uh, the less emotion involved. I believe everything is like a foregone conclusion. Oh, what is, what does the uh, computer have to say? What does technology have to say? And we just relent to that. Can't stand it. So, like a home plate, Jiminy Cricket, then, huh? Yeah. How about it? I mean, I, I, I do. Right. Let's have to call it that. That's cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> he is the legendary Joe Madden. The new book is so good. Whether you're a fan of baseball or just a fan of philosophy, uh, it checks so many different boxes off. It's called The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Joe, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very enjoyable book. I appreciate it, and thank you, man, because you really did research. Uh, your questions are outstanding, and I really appreciate the time, Trey. Appreciate it. We go from a conversation about baseball and life to food in life although i'm gonna be honest i know this guy is an astros fan as he just pointed to on the hat there so we are probably going to talk a little bit more baseball as well it is matthew odom he has been the austin american statesman's restaurant critic and reporter since 2011 each year he puts out a dining guide which showcases his favorite restaurants in the city the 2022 restaurant guide does that with 27 of the best places to eat in town you can grab a link to the guide by going to statesman.com or go to matt's uh, twitter feed that would be at odom.com and that's o-d-a-m matthew always a pleasure speaking with you man how you doing today hey man great great to see you again um excited to talk a little dining maybe a little Astros, it seems like we always run into each other this time of year, and uh, it's an exciting time of year in my uh, personal and professional life. No doubt about that. Let's not bury the lead then, Matthew. So uh, you guys are obviously about to face the Philadelphia Phillies in another World Series. You have to feel really good about your chances to take home another title this year. You know, after losing the two NL East upstarts in uh, 2019 and 2021, I'm not I'm not confident about anything. <laughs> but uh, I don't think the baseball gods let a guy like Dusty Baker, who's a universally beloved legend, put in this kind of time and this kind of heart and soul into the game and leave without a title. He's not Carl Malone, so I think uh, I think Dusty's due one, and I think the guys really want to win. I think Bregman and Altuve uh, and McCullers really want to get some some payback and and uh, Berlander as well. And so uh, I do feel I do feel good. I like our pitching. I like our depth. I like our home field advantage. I like our manager. Uh, but, you know, once bitten, twice shy, I guess. You're right about Dusty. I say this as a Rangers fan. Like there's I'm not as hostile towards the Astros rivalry as I am, say, let's say the Oklahoma Sooners, who I want to see lose every football game. I know plenty of people in my life who would be really happy to get to uh, see the Astros win another World Series, including family members. And yes, Dusty Baker is the anti-Carl reason, uh, Carl Malone for reasons that go well beyond the fact that he's not a pedophile. <laughs> No comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As far as the uh, restaurant guide goes this year, uh, we're going to start at the top with uh, a place that is near and dear to both of our hearts for reasons that go well beyond food. But as we get into the number one restaurant uh, for you this year, Locadoro, I want to talk a little bit about just how good the Austin Italian scene has gotten. Because if you think back, even to when you started this job more than a decade ago, go back 15, 20 years, Austin had Italian places and there were some decent Italian places, but nothing to the level with which it currently stands right now. It just seems like you have endless possibilities in terms of turning to not only good, consistent Italian food, Matt, but also a variety of types of Italian food too. Yeah, you've got kind of the, the Northern Italian, you've got uh, over at a place like Juniper, you've got places uh, like Birdies that like to uh, do dishes that are kind of reminiscent of Roman trattorias over there in East Austin, which I think is number uh, three on my list. Uh, you've got classic red sauce places uh, like the Spio, though some people push back on uh, the de description of that as, as red sauce, but I think it's fair enough. 
um, which is now owned by Daniel Brooks, who's the uh, owner of Leach's Cantina uh, in East Austin, and the chef there, Ryan, who's been there uh, forever. Uh, you've got places like Intero that uh, use whole animal butchery. And of course, um, you've got, well, unfortunately, La Traviata seems to ha have its doors shuttered still. And uh, I'm not sure what the future is from them. I heard a rumor that they might be opening a restaurant out on Southwest Parkway, but uh, that is not confirmed. I'm not breaking news, but just to touch on uh, one of the classics in the genre here. But Loca de Oro, um, you know, Fiore Tedesco is from, his family's from Naples. He's from New York State. Um, so he, he does um, nod to some of uh, Southern Italy with his cooking. But the main thing with them, it's just fresh and seasonal. Um, all the pasta is made in-house. They're so in-house driven that they make their own um, digestivos and aperitifs in-house. Uh, they make an incredible tiramisu, which I know doesn't sound like much. I'm not a big tiramisu guy, but theirs is a, a level apart. Um, so everything they do over there is great. And of course, you know, they do so much more than just good food over there. They're great uh, members of the community as well. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that. By the way, the tiramisu picture that's on the digital dining guide this year had my mouth watering. It's been a little <laughs> yeah. bit since I've been to Locadoro. Next time I go, I am absolutely getting that. But as far as the, uh, the community service side goes, we've talked a little bit about this in the past and on my previous radio show, Fiori was nice enough to join us in studio one year to talk about things, but what exactly is that they're doing to make sure that they are able to give back to the community while also serving good uh, food to people who were able to come in and actually pay that price? You know, he, Fiore and his general manager and partner and part owner, um, Adam Borman are both founding members of Good Work Austin, which is a group that works, it's a nonprofit that works to liaise between the service industry and government um, agencies and also works to, inside the industry to promote um, equal pay and gender equity and um, a living wage for folks. And so they're really, you know, first class in terms of the way they treat their employees, what they knew that they're, um, what they're, what they're bringing to the community in terms of uh, they're feeding, they were feeding um, AISD families and students during the freeze and during the pandemic. They were freezing, uh, they were feeding people uh, who are experiencing homelessness, who are sheltered in these um, hotels around the city. So they have relationships with city organizations that allow them to kind of get boots on the ground and be much more than just a restaurant. They're actually feeding their community. It's kind of, uh, in a small way, it's a little bit um, like what Jose Andres does with his uh, big organization, uh, World Central Kitchen, and so uh, with whom they work during that freeze. So. You know, they're showing that restaurants can be much more than just places for escapism and luxury. They can also be uh, integral parts of community. I didn't realize that they had worked with World Central Kitchen during the freeze. I actually interviewed Ron Howard at South by Southwest earlier this year about the documentary that he did on Jose Andres. So that's uh, not surprising considering uh, just uh, what motivates each of those sides. that They would come together for the greater good for uh, when people were really needed it here in town. Yeah, it was great to it was great to see during those those hard times. But of course, you know they don't win the uh, number one spot just for their their big hearts and their organizational skills. Uh, the food's amazing. Their homemade mozzarella is incredible. The wine list is smart, and you know the servers and the staff are really bought into the mission of the restaurant. They're bought into the food. They know the menu well. You feel you feel an investment from the staff when you're when you're dining at a place like that. 
I'm going to be honest, Matt. I don't know how you say the number two restaurant. I've heard Dai Due. I've heard Dai Du. However you uh, do pronounce it, it is the number two restaurant on your list this year. Uh, why is it so high? You know, they just execute wonderful Texas food. And there, it is Dai Due to give to. I, I, it's a para, an Italian parable. I can't remember from what it derives, but it is Dai Due. Thank um, you. And um, their pork chop is incredible. It's this honey brine grilled pork chop. Um, they they use animals like Nilgai, which is in the antelope family, uh, serve game. They're really big on culling the wild boar population. Uh, they always have been. Jesse Griffiths is the owner of the restaurant, um, and he has been really big on culling that population because they're really a scourge. Uh, so you can get like a wild boar confit. Uh, that's been on the menu, I think, um, in, in various um stylings since the day they opened uh everything's just wonderful it's uh it's all local i mean it's so local that the starter for their sourdough when they first opened uh was made with grape leaves growing from wild vines in an alley across the street so uh they keep it pretty real that way and they're also huge supporters of the texas wine industry um which has really come on in the past decade as daidue has been open I think it was a shock to some people early on that they would only serve Texas wine, um, but they've st- stood by that and um, it's proven to be a good bet. Jesse is so committed to helping to call the wild boar population here in Texas, which is obviously a big problem that I believe he still offers trips to people where they can go out, kill a boar, learn how to dress it and break it down and uh, eventually uh, serve it in your own kitchen too, correct? Yeah, it's amazing. He offers these hunting and fishing um, expeditions and classes and cooking classes. And uh, I haven't done any of them yet, but I'd really like to sometime. I might have to wait for this part of my job uh, to be over to get that close to him. But uh, it seems like it'd be a really fun, a big fun weekend. But people should check that out if they're into hunting or fishing. You mentioned the Italian spot birdies as number three. That's located over on East 12th. Uh, the number four spot goes to Suerte, the first uh, Mexican uh, component on this list. And there are certainly several other restaurants throughout uh, the course of these 27 restaurants. What does it love so much about Suerte? You know, the food is great, of course. Uh, they, you know, Nishimalize all their corn in house for their tostadas, uh, for their tortillas that they make with their suadero tacos, those brisket tacos uh, that are so popular. But as simple as it is to say, it's just a good time when you go in there. The vibe's right, the food is delicious, and the energy's good. And that's really what you want from a restaurant, I think. And what about Nita Taqueria, which comes in at number five? Yeah, Nita's great. Edgar Rico was actually named, I don't, I'm going to butcher the, the, the award, but Time Magazine's 100 people that are next, like young people that are influencing culture uh, in a profound way. He won the James Beard Award for, um, you know, rising young chef. And I mean, the tacos there are as good uh, as anywhere I've, I've eaten in Texas. You know, it's one of the best Mexican restaurants in the state. It's barely a restaurant. You know, there's a counter with about four or five seats. Um, but then outside they have these expansive outdoor seating areas with uh, picnic tables. They've got a great natural wine list, uh, but they'll do like an okra tostada uh, with like pickled and roasted and grilled okra. They do an unbelievable migas that is changes your idea of what a migas taco is. Mm. They do uh, duck confit, which just tastes like fall. 
they do a really good tuna tostada that kind of has uh, Asian flavors in it as well. It's uh, it's fantastic. So the number six restaurant is definitely the one that gets the most money of the 27 that you have uh, listed in the 2022 restaurant guide. That would be Bufalina Douay, not just because I have an eight and six year old at home and they love pizza and we want to go to a place where we can not only enjoy the pizza, but some other things from time to time. Bufalina is good with the starters. They're good with the pastas, which they rotate pretty regularly. They also rotate components of the starters as well. They have a good mozzarella, great uh, burrata. And then they have really good Neapolitan pizzas as well, Matt. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and again, just kind of like with Locadoro, you know, they, they follow the Italian mode of being seasonal. Um, and so whether you're getting a green bean salad there in the summer or something more hearty with one of their pastas in the fall and a butternut squash or something like that, um, you, you taste the seasons, the quality is exceptional. Um, and again, it's one of those places where you, you feel a real buy-in, um, from the staff there. Matt Lester is the chef at Bufalina Due on Burnett. And then they're going to open apparently in the next week or two or three or four, uh, they're going to reopen Bufalina, uh, in a new space on East Cesar Chavez, which is of course the street where Bufalina originally opened. Um, and the chef there will be Gray Nonis who was the co-executive chef at Olame when it opened. So uh, I expect more good things out of Bufalina in the months ahead. That's right. And uh, by the way, they have a great wine program there as well. Stephen Dilly, yes. I believe, has won awards in the past. I know the uh, the, the group who's responsible for things over at the Douay restaurant uh, also does a really good job, Tina, Monica, and the like. So uh, if you like drinking wine and eating really good, simple Italian food, Bufalina Douay may be the place for you. That begs a general question for you, Matt, because when I go to an Italian place that offers one of two things, uh, it's pretty easy for me to gauge what the rest of that experience is going to be like. And for Italian, it is the Caesar salad and the cacio e pepe. Now, Bufalina doesn't always have the cacio on menu. It's an off-menu item. They have the noodles. They have the ability to uh, to mix the pepper and cheese. So if you're ever craving something like that, they may be able to do it for you. But is there any dish when you go into an Italian restaurant that you look to before all others to uh, try and get a good gauge for the place? You know, the, the house-made mozzarella, uh, I think, the homemade pastas, obviously, especially the stuffed pastas, uh, those things tell me, tell me a whole lot ab about a place. And I was at Bufalina Due on Sunday, actually, and the cacio e pepe was, was on the menu. Um, but I'd gone there craving a pizza and I had an hour to myself. And so I went ahead and, and got the, uh, I don't know if it's a, a Machiana pizza, um, which was excellent, uh, added sausage. I really wanted the cacio e pepe to go, but I know that it, it doesn't travel well and they don't want you taking pastas to go. Uh, which is a reminder to everybody, don't order pasta for delivery or for takeout because it's not going to end up the way they want you to have it. So, Good piece of advice there. The number seven restaurant on this list is a place that I've passed by a thousand times, but I've never been there before. So what can you tell us about Lenoir? Oh, wow. Lenoir, um, actually going there um, fairly soon for a uh, uh, special night for me and my wife, an anniversary so that kind of says it right there. It's the quintessential date night place. Um, it is um, elegant inside. It used to be a little more shabby chic. It's a little bit more elegant now. The staff has a real strong familiarity with the menu from uh, chef owner Todd Duplachon and his wife, Jessica Marr. Uh, they met in New York City working in restaurants. Todd was the chef at the Four Seasons for years before opening Lenoir, uh, which also has a great 
uh, wine list, but the, the idea behind Lenoir is that it is, quote, hot weather food. So they make food that resembles food from countries with a similar climate to where we are uh, using those flavor profiles. So you might get um, North African food, you might get Mexican, you might get um, Indian, especially. Um, Todd worked under Floyd Cardoz, the late Indian chef uh, in New York City. So he's always got a fish curry on there. Um, so you're getting a lot of exciting, flavorful food that basically mirrors from cultures that in countries that mirror our um, climate. The number eight restaurant on this year's 2022 restaurant guide from Matthew Odom of the Austin American Statesman is one of the newer restaurants on this list. That would be Kanhe, the uh, the uh, Caribbean concept uh, that is uh, the responsibility of the people behind Emmer and Rye. What do you like so much about Kanhe? You know, I will say that, you know, much like Suerte, it's a really good time. Uh, it has really robust, rowdy flavors, but there's also, you know, some delicate, uh, elegant touches. Uh, they do a, a avocado ceviche that, that's really nice. Uh, but they, they serve, uh, so the chef Tavel Crystal Joseph is from Guyana, and so they serve a lot of food from Guyana and from the Caribbean. Uh, a staple of Guyanese cuisine is a pepper pot, uh, which is like a very aromatic stew. They serve beef curries. Um, it, it's really great. They do an amazing jerk chicken that is just fire. So if you like spicy food, get the jerk chicken, maybe get a, a side of the tropical fruit that you can order because that helps put out the flames a little bit. Number nine finds the first barbecue place on the list. I believe there are two barbecue spots. One is Franklin's, a little bit further down the list, and also Interstellar Barbecue, which is in northwest Austin off of 620. It is in the same spot that Noble Sandwiches used to be, and John Bates is the guy who is behind both of those places. What is it about Interstellar that separates them from what is obviously an incredible selection of Texas barbecue places here in Central Texas? Yeah, before any football fans uh, or sports fans get on me about only two barbecue places, I didn't include trailers in this list. That'll be a separate list. And, you know, as you know, whether it's Leroy and Lewis or Micklethwaite or distant relatives, some of our best barbecue operations uh, come from trailers, um, which explains kind of why there's only two on this list. And maybe there was a third one that just just barely missed the cut um, that I've already heard something about from a few people. But uh, uh, what, what Interstellar... Place? Oh, uh, you know, whatever you think the third best barbecue restaurant in town is, it's not a trailer. Fair enough. Um, Interstellar, you know, John worked at Osti, he worked at Wink, and so he's a chef, you know, and uh, classically, or, you know, came up in kitchens as a, as, as a line cook and a sous chef uh, and a chef de cuisine. And so that's the kind of mentality that he brought to his deli, Noble Sandwiches. And it's what he brings to Interstellar. And I always thought it was, you know, pretty ballsy to go switch lanes like that. You know, I think in my lead of my review several years ago, I compared him to Bo Jackson um, or Deion Sanders. Because most people can't do that. I mean, most people end up looking like Michael Jordan uh, on the Birmingham Barons. Um, but, you know, he's he's got this lane and he's crushing it. And then he tries to get into the competitive lane of Texas barbecue. And... Um, it seemed like a bold move and it paid off. I mean, he makes really great brisket. Um, he also does a tea, sweet tea glazed pork belly, which is almost like dessert. The sides are all incredible, especially there's this um, scalloped smoked potato dish that's just, you'd find it a, at a fine French restaurant. 
the sausages are always exciting and fun. And then he'll do occasional tacos. I was there recently and he had a uh, lamb taco that was out of this world, probably the best taco I ate this year. Um, so you just never know what you're going to get, but you know, it's going to have a lot of intention and Bates is going to be there um, often slicing the meat for you at the station. Uh, it's really great. Um, it's worth the drive and now worth the, uh, the wait. I've had people rave about the sides there too. Yeah, they're incredible. And they're all, they're all scratch based. And I think you can get a, I think he gives a free cup of beans to people, you know, as kind of a nod to old, you know, Texas barbecue tradition. I'm not a big beans guy, but uh, they're sweet and nice and people seem to like them. That's good to know. I'm not going to go over all 27 restaurants with you today. That would take up way too much of your time. I'm just going to run down the list a little bit. Number 10, Barley Swine. It is an institution, has been for a long time, even that new space, which, by the way, is right next to Bufalina Douay. Talk about yeah. a, a good one-two punch there. Uh, number 11 is Suke Odome, I, I'm guessing is how that's pronounced. It's a, uh, a sushi restaurant. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, Suke Odome. It's a small eight-person sushi counter, um, best sushi in the city. Uh, for my money, really hard to get into. So good luck, everybody. <laughs> Number 12 is Franklin Barbecue. Number 13 is Apartment 115. I haven't heard of this place before. What exactly is this? Yeah, that's probably the most off the radar um, restaurant. And I'm going to be writing about them more in the future. But mm. it started out as a wine bar in East Austin. It's in the, the 7 building, I think it's called, or 7th. It's an apartment building across Caddy Corner from Salt and Time. Uh, they were just doing kind of like charcuterie. And then they brought in Charles Jarrell as a chef who worked at Barley Swine for years, then worked at Mini Bar under Jose Andres. And I think he worked at Cezanne or somewhere in San Francisco, a Michelin-starred place. So he's got crazy chops. And it's, it's, uh, it'll remind you of, of Barley Swine, but with a more, uh, if Bryce had a personal narrative of Texas food, Charles brings some Chinese influence to it. Um, it's, it's really good. I hope people read more about it in the future from me. Number 14 is uh, Otoko. That is a great omakase experience here in town off of South Congress. Great food. It's, it's one of those once a year types of places for most people because it, uh, it is going to cost two years <laughs> or maybe two years because it does cost a pretty penny. Really cool, trippy space, too, as well, Matt. Yeah, it's kind of like a Stanley Kubrick designed uh, omakase. Exactly. Uh, Tycoon is a, a good spot. That's uh, over in the domain. Is that uh, the most casual place that you have on the uh, on the list this year, Matt? I would say that, and I guess Interstellar Barbecue, yeah. um, off the top of off the top of my head. Uh, Tycoon's wonderful. The flavors are amazing. It's the only reason I'll go to the domain. Uh, so that <laughs> says something. That or maybe to uh, to grab a beverage before an Austin FC game, right? That's, that's true. Although I, I like to hit those breweries up there. Yeah, that's probably the the direction I would head to. Number 16 is Odd Duck, another uh, great spot that's been around for a long time. 17, Olame, which I feel like if there's any restaurant that is serving world-quality food uh, in Austin that probably still, for whatever reason, doesn't get its due, despite the fact that it's won a ton of awards and ends up on these sorts of lists each and every year, it may be Olame, Matt. I feel like whenever I'm checking for reservations, there's almost always at least one Olame reservation available. Well, people should grab it. You know, it was my number one, I think, three times in a six-year or seven-year stretch. Um, I really like it. They've added a bar at the front. They're seating out on the patio now. Uh, Amanda Turner has come in as the chef de cuisine. She used to be at Juniper. She's doing some really exciting stuff, exploring kind of those flavors of the African diaspora and what creates American food and, you know, reminding us that American food 
uh, especially in the South is African food. And uh, yeah, it's excellent as always. Great staff, great service. So the two newer restaurants that are highest on my list that also made your list are Birdie's, which of course is number three, and then also the number 18 restaurant, Diner Bar. Uh, for anybody who hasn't heard of Diner Bar before, what exactly is this one? I mean, Diner Bar is an excellent uh, is an excellent restaurant. Um, it's a, another Southern restaurant. It just so happens that the Southern uh, restaurants were stacked next to each other. Uh, Mishama Bailey is a chef from Savannah. She actually grew up mostly in New York and kind of came of age at Prune under Gabrielle Hamilton. Um, and her partner, Jono Morisano, wanted to open a restaurant in, a, in this old Greyhound bus station in Savannah. And they opened that together uh, called The Gray. And so this restaurant is only their first restaurant outside of Georgia. Um, it plays some of the hits from The Gray and from the diner bar there in Savannah. Um, great Southern food, foie gras and grits with a little bit of strawberry, uh, a seafood boudin, which is on the menu, I think, courtesy of chef de cuisine, Christine Cottrell, who's been in Austin for at least 20, 25 years. Um, it's really great. It's downtown. It's at the bottom of the Thompson Hotel. So I don't think a lot of locals think to go there. I think downtown is becoming less of uh, a locals scene than ever before, but locals should check it out. Hmm. I'm not a big grits guy. I would dive straight into that foie gras and grits though. Yeah, it's good. Number 19 is foreign and domestic. Number 20, Laundrette. And again, another institution that's been around for a long time on the East side. Number 21, Better Half. And even though people may think of Better Half as a coffee place, Matt, they serve excellent food, including, I'm assuming, those cauliflower tater tots, which are out you of know, this ev Everybody loves the cauliflower tater tots. I don't. Uh, everybody loves them. And I'm glad everybody loves them. I do think there's some days that I'm in there and I'm like, this is the best restaurant in the city. Um, you know, whether it's it's a pasta dish, whether it's an Asian influenced salad, whether it's just a big kitchen sink salad, whether it's their chicken burger, which is maybe even better than their cheeseburger, which is one of the best in town. Uh, it's just smart. And the, the chef, um, Rich Reimark, Reimbold, came over from um, working for McGuire Mormon. So he's got some chops. And it's just a fun place. You know, the wine list is great. The boozes are great. They've got, you know, um, their own brewery next door. Uh, so they've got great beer on tap. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a great place. It's a counter service place. So your mileage may vary on that kind of a service model. But again, it's one of the, you know, probably the three most casual places on the list. Number 22 is another really good Italian spot, Red Ash on Colorado and 3rd Street. Uh, the number 23 restaurant is El Dorado Cafe on uh, Anderson Lane near Mopac. Uh, that place has been really good for a while. Another one of those casual spots where you can get uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So regardless of the time of day, it's a, a good spot to turn to if you're in that area. 24 is Key, modern uh, Asian kitchen. I don't know a whole lot about this one either, Matt. What's uh, what's up with Key? You know, uh, I think it's pronounced G and uh, the chef. QI for those Q -I. right now, and, but it's yeah. pronounced G, excuse me. I think so. And the chef there, uh, Chef Lin. So did you ever go to Wu Chow and have those um, those uh, soup dumplings early on when they first opened? Yes, she I was did. the one. In, yeah, she was the one in charge of that menu. And so she did their dim sum menu. And then she opened up Lin Asian Cafe and Bar on West 6th Street, just down the street, um, which is more popular than I can quite understand, because I think G is, is, is much better. Uh, there's great dim sum. There's a scallop shumai. They also do bigger, uh, uh, bigger dishes like a turmeric salmon. 
Um, everything's really good. So it's basically modern Chinese uh, and really good staff uh, and a great patio kind of looks out over West Six across from GSD and M there. Um, it's, it, it's my favorite kind of upmarket um, Chinese restaurant in town for sure. Number 25, uh, Emmer and Rye still staying strong on Rainy Street as Rainy uh, seems to uh, fade into the sunset. Number 26 is Avery, uh, Aviary, excuse me, Wine and Kitchen. And number 27, uh, I love this pick because it is a great re restaurant and maybe one people don't think of for these types of lists, but Bartlett's, which is in the old Houston's location over on Anderson and Burnett, is uh, a really good underrated steakhouse in this town. Maybe a little bit less so now that you have them at number 27. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just consistent quality. I mean, it's the quintessential American chop house. Um, and I don't know how old you are, but, you know, when I was growing up, going to a place like that in the 80s or 90s, like it felt special, it felt swanky, and now it just feels more comfortable, uh, like, a, like a bit of a clubhouse. And the service there and the execution there is just flawless. And Mr. Bartlett opened it. He opened, uh, I think the original Houston's open was the... Um, franchisee of Houston's here in North Austin, then bought the restaurant from the company, ran it. He passed away a while back. His general manager and chef have taken it over and they haven't missed a beat. I mean, that smoked salmon appetizer, the uh, artichoke spinach dip, the steaks, the strong cocktails, the smart wine list. It's just, it's just what you want. It's just uh, not pretentious. It's just right down the middle. It's just a three wood, 260 yards down the middle. All right, Matt, what's your prediction for the World Series? Astros and six. Astros and six. I love it. He is Matthew Odom, longtime statesman, restaurant critic, and reporter. All the, goes all the way back to 2011. Each year he does release his restaurant guide, which is his favorite restaurants in the city. The 2022 version, which lists 27 restaurants, some of which we went into in detail, but those that I just listed, uh, Matt does a great job of breaking those down in print. You can check that out through statesman.com or go to his Twitter feed. You can find the link there as well, and he can be found on Twitter at Odom. That's O-D-A-M. Matthew, thank you as always for the time. Always a pleasure, man. Great to see you, Trey. Hook them. Hook them. All right, that is it for another edition of Trey Chats. I am Trey Elling. Thanks again to Brian Jones, Joe Madden, and of course, Matthew Odom for talking a little bit of food at the end. I want you people to have yourselves a great rest of the week, a phenomenal weekend. We'll speak to you next Wednesday. In the meantime, hook them.